Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, his church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. She'd seen on TV that when all this Indiana River stuff was going on, a TV reporter from a TV station in Indianapolis went to a small town and interviewed this couple, this family that owned a pizza parlor, Memories Pizza, it was called. They were evangelicals. She asked them, would you be willing to serve gay customers? Of course, they said. She asked them, would you be willing to cater a gay wedding? They said, no, it's against our, our beliefs. When that went viral, there was some massive bonfire all over the country, people giving death threats to this couple. That made this Czech woman say to her son, this is exactly what it was like where I was growing up, when the government, in order to punish people who dissented from whatever the communist view was, would gin up a mob to try to threaten to burn people's businesses down and destroy them. Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot, and if you've been a cultural observer for even just a few years, you've noticed some shifts. Things once thought outside of the mainstream of thought are not just accepted now. There are those who militantly fight against those who reject those new ideas. This and next week, we do hope you listen to a conversation, Gabe, you've recorded with your friend Rod Dreher. He recently released a book called Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. He also is the author of The Benedict Option. And it's a conversation we've had around this Q community for a long time. We care about thinking well, being curious, advancing good. We also care about thinking through the health of the church and what our role as the church is in a nation that's not necessarily Christian and a nation that's constantly changing and the context is changing. And so what does faithfulness look like? So Rod and I, in just a moment, I'm going to get to have a conversation with him and ask him a lot of questions. He sees a future coming that he would describe as totalitarianism, that there's a future coming where there's going to be more controls, less freedom, and it's going to start to affect a lot of things about the civic life that maybe we just take for granted. And so I want to get into that. I want to ask him questions about that. How is that possibly going to show up? How can we imagine that future? But then also, what does it mean to be faithful in the midst of a changing society where where maybe as the church, you do lose some of your freedoms. You're not in a power position. You are a minority in the way in which the New Testament church was always a minority. So how do we find hope in that, even with change? Now, just this past week, Rod was part of a larger two-day discussion that Gabe, you and your team hosted in Nashville called Q&A, a post-election roundup. It was a gathering of a diverse but faithful group of Christian thought leaders like yourself and Rod, along with Christine Kane, Scott Sauls, Mika Edmondson, David Bailey, and many others that have been heard before around Q Ideas, having roundtable discussions around issues such as race and justice, civil unrest and the elections, censorship and conspiracies, and so much more. These were deep discussions, honest discussions that are needed as the church, and the video of these conversations are available. So you can learn more about all of that at qideas.org slash QA, that's qideas.org 
org slash QA. In addition to that, listen into this conversation. Let it give you just a little bit of a taste of taking a deep dive into a topic that maybe is misunderstood, maybe we haven't thought a lot about, but it's important for us to wrestle with as we consider faithfulness into the future. Let's listen in now. Rod, I'm so grateful for you taking time to talk with us about such an important topic today. Thanks for being with us on the Q podcast. Glad to be here. Um, so first of all, you've became a friend of mine probably eight years ago. We first crossed paths, and I, I always remembered about you that you had a prophetic imagination that allowed you to understand history, but to put it forward for us, to help us understand the times we're in, and to try to learn from that history, and even if it takes us to a place that maybe people don't desire, right? <laughs> um, would that be true of you? Do, you? do you see that as a pattern in your life? Yeah, I think it, it really is the case with me. And uh, I don't know whether it's a blessing or a curse, but it's just there. I I can remember back in 2001 when I was a columnist at the New York Post and started writing about the Catholic Church's sex abuse scandal. I was a very devout Catholic at that time. And I can remember discovering these things over the next three, four years of continuing to write about it. And I was just astonished that things were as bad as they really were. But what also discouraged me and dismayed me and eventually, I think, led to a spiritual crisis that ended with me leaving the Catholic Church was seeing how many of my fellow Catholics, fellow believers, just refused to contend, to, to see with what was, right, what was right in front of their eyes, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I understand why they were doing it, because the, all the facts in, fa- in front of them were challenging their worldview. They were challenging the structures, the psychological and emotional structures that they had in place that helped them feel at home in the world and make sense of the world. But the fact is, these things were true, and they were happening, and eventually, you can't run away from the truth. Um, so that I, I've been, I'm experienced with this sort of thing, and it doesn't make me happy to say, hey, guess what, everybody? Guess what, church? Things are worse than we think, a lot worse. We better be, get ready for it. But I've been able to see from my own spiritual journey and just writing about the Catholic Church that uh, you can't hide from truth. It will eventually find you. And if you have not prepared yourself spiritually for what's actually happening, you could be spiritually broken. That's mm-hmm. exactly what happened to me. Yeah. And, and that's a good word. And I think as I've gotten to know you, I've appreciated your voice because it's one that I, I agree. There's plenty of people who who don't want to think about some of the topics that you bring up and you're willing to raise about you know, the the way the church is crumbling in a lot of ways uh, for what we've known it to be in the Western world or the way in which uh, our society is changing in such a progressive way that it has the real opportunity to uh, unroot so many of these virtues and values that, that for a long time have been a part of a free American society. Um, and so we don't want to hear that because that that's bad news and people don't want bad news. They want good news. And right. uh, when you start talking about this, um, there are some that start to critique everything that you're saying and, and try to disprove it. And then there's others that I think I fall more in this camp that appreciate it and go, this is a prophetic word coming from a man who understands where we've been, where we're going, is putting a faith in, in God that, that supersedes circumstance. Um, and it's going to take us deeper into a place where we can better understand the times so that we can have some sense of, of what to do. Uh, and in this particular moment, as you wrote this latest book called Live Not By Lies, A Manual for Christian Dissidents, 
um, I'm finding more and more people that are reading this book are resonating and they're realizing, okay, this is, this is scary, but feels true. When you wrote Benedict option back several years ago, there was a little bit of a reaction from some who just said, this is too much. I don't think it's going this way. I don't think Christians are going to need to form much stronger bonds and, and commitments to one another in order to survive whatever this next season's going to look like. But I think looking back, it's kind of aged well. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. You know, I, although I still run into people, Christians who say, well, I don't think we ought to head for the hills, like you say in the Benedict Option. And even three years later, I'll say, um, that's not what the book says. But uh, right. they, they, they just have it in their mind that I'm being an unnecessary alarmist. But I'll tell you, I, with this new book, Live Not By Lies, it's a much easier sell uh, as an idea to people because of the things that we've all lived through for the past three years and especially the past six months. I remember when I turned in the final manuscript of the book to my editor back in, uh, I think it was late February, early March, I was still wondering, how am I going to convince my audience, American Christians, that uh, we really are moving into into a really bad place, potentially a form of totalitarianism? And then between that moment and publication in late September, COVID happened and George Floyd and the, uh, the the riots happened. And now the book is selling like hotcakes because I don't have to try to convince people uh, in the same way I had to do with Benedict Option because all they have to do is look at the news. Yeah. Well, one of the big ideas you start to describe in this book is how to spot totalitarianism. You, you call it and you write about it as a soft totalitarianism, which more and more people are starting to to wake up to the big idea of it. But for listeners who haven't thought about totalitarianism or authoritarianism, I mean, just give us some definitions here of what is totalitarianism? What does that look like? Well, authoritarianism is not the same thing as totalitarianism. And this is often confused in the public's mind. But political science say says that uh, authoritarianism is when you have a political system where all power is concentrated in one leader or one party. But outside the realm of politics, they don't really care what goes on in a society. Totalitarianism is an extreme form of authoritarianism in which all political power is held by one leader or the party, and all aspects of life are politicized. There is no aspect of life that escapes the ruling ideology. And I call what we're heading into soft totalitarianism because I distinguish it from the hard totalitarianism of, say, the Stalin-era Soviet Union or of George Orwell's 1984. You know, that's a totalitarianism in which the state uh, compelled conformity by inflicting pain and terror on people with gulags, secret police, that sort of thing. This is more like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World style totalitarianism in which uh, the state compels conformity not by inflicting pain and terror, but by manipulating people's pleasures their status, and their entertainment. And it's also, in our situation, it's not really the state. It's more of what I call the regime, which is to say some parts of the state, but also uh, big corporations, uh, Hollywood, mainstream media, universities, and other institutions. And it is going to be the, and it is the kind of thing that people don't recognize it first as totalitarianism because it doesn't seem threatening. It seems virtuous, actually. They're trying to make us happier and deal with our anxieties. In the end, though, 
it, it's go, it is ultimately totalitarianism. And these people I talked to uh, for the book, people who grew up under Soviet communism and who came to America, they see it for what it really is. And they're trying to wake us all up. Yeah, well, I think in your book where you're talking about this, um, I just want to read one of the passages from it. You said today's left wing totalitarianism once again appeals to an internal hunger, specifically the hunger for a just society, one that vindicates and liberates the historical victims of oppression. It masquerades as kindness, demonizing dissenters and disfavored demographic groups to protect the feelings of victims in order to bring about social justice. I mean, those are strong words, but quite descriptive of, as you referenced, this 2020 year. We're seeing some of the demonization of dissenters, right? Whether it's... That's right. You know, whether it's uh, Black Lives Matter as an organization and those who aren't willing to go there and, and show support for that, or we see it even in the COVID situation where those who don't want to play along with what the typical um, government restrictions might be or wearing masks or whatever it might be that's being instructed from on high, those who aren't playing along are certainly looked at and grouped as those who are against human flourishing. That's right. That's right. And we can't have that. I I got the idea for the book from a phone call I received in 2015. Uh, your listeners might remember the battle uh, in Indiana over the Religious Freedom Restoration Act there. The Republican state legislature back then and Governor Mike Pence signed a state version of the federal RIFRA law, which all it would have done would be to give religious believers a religious liberty defense if they were sued for discrimination. It wouldn't guarantee that they won. It would just give them a defense. Well, as soon as that was passed, uh, big business, Apple Computers, Salesforce, all kinds of major corporations came down like a ton of bricks on the state of Indiana and said, this is bigotry. If you don't repeal this, there will be major economic consequences. This was the first time that Big business had taken sides in the culture war in that way, and it was decisive. The thing that sparked the book, though, was a phone call I received from a doctor at the Mayo Clinic. He told me that his mother, his elderly mother, lives with him and his wife. And when she was young, she grew up in Czechoslovakia, communist Czechoslovakia, and she spent four years in a prison camp for her faith. And now, living in America, she said, son, the things I'm seeing happen here remind me of what happened back home. What she was talking about specifically was she had seen on TV that when all this Indiana River stuff was going on, a TV reporter from a TV station in Indianapolis went to a small town and interviewed this couple, this family that owned um, a pizza parlor, Memories Pizza, it was called. They were evangelicals. She asked them, would you be willing to serve gay customers? Of course, they said. She asked them, would you be willing to cater a gay wedding? They said, no, it's against our, our beliefs. When that went viral, the, there was some massive bonfire all over the country, people giving death threats to this couple, uh, threatening to burn their business down, and so on and so forth. That made this Czech woman say to her son, this is exactly what it was like where I was growing up, when the government, in order to punish people who dissented from whatever the communist view was, would gin up a mob to try to threaten to burn people's businesses down and destroy them. And when that lady called me and said, or her son called me and said that, I thought it was really alarmist. But the more I started talking 
to people who had lived with this sort of thing, either in Russia or the Soviet bloc, the more I began to see things through their eyes and realize that they were seeing things that we in America are blind to, in part because we think that it can't happen here. Yeah, I mean, I think there is this assumption that somehow we there's, there's no possible way in American life it could ever go that direction, that we've learned the lessons of history, that we're smarter than ever, we're more progressed as a society, and so we would never revert back to that. But obviously the way it's painted is not that this is a reversion, it's that it's a progression, right? That this is a this is a better future for everybody, and that would have been painted years ago when, you know, other revolutions came about that radically changed societies. And you talk about that, you tell this great so many stories of history, which I think really root this book and allow people to start to imagine a different society. What did this look like? But you do start to apply it to um, our society in the sense of going, here's what you start to look out for. I remember you describing a professor, maybe you could talk about this, that um, there's a moment where when people are having to be hushed about their beliefs, that's when you know something new is starting to arrive in, in this free society. And how much more now are people feeling that as it relates to their social media post, who they're talking to in a room, what they're communicating, what they're typing, right? I mean, it's it's happening big time. Oh, it's happening everywhere. Yeah, the, the professor you're talking about was uh, is an engineer, a professor of engineering. He's from Czechoslovakia, immigrated here in his late 20s. And he said he knew that things were changing here when people he knew uh, were would fall silent when he would start talking about politics and start looking over their shoulders. This was a few years ago uh, to see who was listening. That same professor, by the way, told me – I don't think I use this in the book – He said that he has friends who work in the federal government for the federal bureaucracy, and they have to hide in their offices in Washington. They have to hide the fact that they support the president of the United States. Now, that's just bizarre, right? uh, And, you know, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump, but this is crazy when it's gotten to that point in this country. Just today, as um, you and I are talking, I don't know if you've even seen this news, but Facebook has demonetized the Babylon Bee. For a satirical story they published about Senator Maisie Hirono and the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. Hmm. It's just a satirical site, and it's clearly satire, but Facebook says, oh, no, you're inciting violence. So this is directly affecting the ability of the people who run the Babylon Bee to make a living. It sounds uh, – you compare this to – totalitarianism, and you laugh at that sort of thing, because this is not Siberia. This is not the gulag. But this is the sort of thing that's growing more and more and more. And it is definitely going to affect our ability, not only to make a living, but to, I I believe, to educate our children as Christians and to worship as Christians. Yeah, free speech is such an important value to keeping a free society. And the moment that starts to be encumbered, just because you disagree with that other person's point of view, you've now started to enter into a new land where you're going to trust somebody else to determine what's good, what's true, what's moral, what's immoral. And we're taking it out of the hands of people. We're saying our people are too dumb to discern for themselves what's true information and what's false information. So we're going to take control of that. And we're seeing that in big tech. We're starting to see, you know, voices, you know, taken off of platforms, deplatformed, um, censored. And, and what I think most people don't understand is when that starts to happen, if we don't stand up and push back against that, even for somebody we completely disagree with their ideology, you're next. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and we, we don't quite understand because we, we realize it might cost us something, 
to push back or to even have conversations like you and I are having today, just to put it out there that, you know, this is a real threat that we should be serious about no matter what political ideology you most align with. But as Americans, that there is an assault on free speech, I think is becoming obvious to people. I hope so. You know, I've been talking to different Christian professors, university professors who are terrified within their own universities uh, of being found out. They're moving deep into the closet uh, as Christians because they they understand how totalitarian the the atmosphere, the emerging atmosphere in their institutions is. But um, they're telling me, too, that this they said, Rod, you don't see it because, you know, I'm 53 years old and I haven't seen a university campus in many years, but they're dealing with students today, and they say that the students are so different from the way they were when we were in school. Back then, whether you were liberal or conservative, you know, you would clash, you would argue, you would have it out, but in the end, everybody believed that you should be able to say what's on your mind. They tell me today, young people don't like that. They have been raised in a in a a bubble, a coddling uh, by their own parents and by the institutions in which they've been raised that tells them that they shouldn't have to put up with any anxiety at all, anything that upsets them at all. And the institutions that have been there to to form them, their churches, education, and so on and so forth, uh, have played along with this. So you end up with things that happen, like what happened at Yale University in 2015, in which uh, Dr. Nicholas Christakis, you can see this on YouTube, a professor there, was trying to have an argument on the quad with some students who were really angry at his wife for saying that Yale should not tell students what kind of Halloween costumes they can wear. Something as trivial as that. The students got angry at her because they wanted Yale to be paternalistic and tell them, you can't wear these things. Well, if you go back and look at this argument they had, there is Christakis, a baby boomer, are trying to have a a sincere discourse, listening to the students, offering his feedback. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They're shrieking at him. They curse him. They're having these emotional displays, accusing him of of, uh, denying their right to exist just for disagreeing with them. I think there's a tremendous generational shift here that a lot of us older people in the church just haven't wrapped our minds around. Yeah, because you wouldn't have imagined that could have happened. But you're right. I, I find the next generation to be much quieter around these issues, even if they disagree. They're likely not going to talk about it because they don't want to create division or even out themselves with a different view than maybe what the main stream view is. Um, and even, you know, during this season with COVID and all that, to see how much even medical doctors, right, are being censored because they have a different opinion about what's happening or how to solve uh, COVID. And if it doesn't align with the World Health Organization, even Facebook and other big tech, you know, there's warnings, there's taken down videos, you can't access this information. Uh, This isn't about religion. This is about just saying, hey, there's an alternative viewpoint than what the the dominant authority might have. And we want to shut that down because maybe it's a threat. Yeah. Maybe there's a fear. You know, I in the book, I write about a physician, a senior physician at a major American hospital who told me about how his hospital, how his institution handles transgender. He said that the, the, it made a, a decision, the hospital made a decision that anybody who comes in wanting cross-sex hormones or surgery to, tra- to transition to the opposite sex, give them whatever they ask for, even if, in your judgment as a physician, this is not what's best for them, that they would be better, their dysphoria would be better treated in some other way. 
Now, this physician grew up in the Soviet Union. He said it wasn't even this bad in the Soviet Union because they they expected us to obey uh, the political ideology in other realms of life. But at least in medicine, things were pretty clear. Uh, they, they left it left us alone. But now this is happening in the United States. And this doctor said that even on his social media feeds, he only puts the happiest, uh, most anodyne, uh, ordinary, have a nice day things, because he knows that the hospital's human resources department is monitoring the social media accounts of all the doctors there. So, I mean, this is just an ordinary thing in daily life, but you see how we're becoming groomed to silence ourselves. And this is also how totalitarianism works. They only have to make um, one or two examples to teach everybody to be quiet. Is there something unique Rod, in your experience in sort of American life and in the culture that's been created here that I know there's a sense maybe we've lost that, maybe it's not still here, but that there's there's something peculiar about Americans that will push back on this in the season ahead if this starts to continue to creep in, um, or do you think we're so far down the road that there's not many people that even understand other values to see it clearly and to know how to push back? I'm afraid I'm more pessimistic about this. I I remember the in my research for the Benedict Option, I read a lot of the work of Christian Smith, the sociologist of religion at Notre Dame. And he's the guy who came up with the concept of moralistic therapeutic deism as the true religion of Americans. And he was especially hard on millennials and Gen Z uh, Christians saying that, you know, even those who identify as Christians say that the thing that they're most interested in in life is being happy and having a good time. And uh, this is not something that people grow out of. This is something that has become more general, this attitude towards life and and what is the good life. It's even... uh, pretty strongly in the baby boomers and Gen X, my generation, but it's really strong in the younger ones. This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul Perot, and as hard as it is, we need to press the pause button right there on Gabe's conversation with Rod Dreher. We'll continue the conversation next week. Much about what Rod and Gabe talked about comes from Rod's latest book, Live Not By Lies. We encourage you to check it out. On behalf of Gabe Lyons, have a great week. Join us next time as Gabe continues his conversation with Rod Dreher on Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.